Hi, I'm Anita Ganizada. I play Rachel Prasad on Sci-Fi's Alphas, and you are listening to Sci-Fi Diner. You are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. And now, bringing you the latest in science fiction movies and television shows. Here are your here are your this is a capital. We have a little problem with our emphasis. So we may experience some slice turning this and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by the company you depend upon for all of your greatest needs, Heart Life. These stories are true dramatizations from our fair city's glorious history. So listen and remember, Heart Life, all the life you'll ever need. Before the advent of component media like Plasteel and Durium, The walls of our tunnels were constructed from crude materials, fashioned from little more than Earth itself, though it may be hard to believe that the directors could be nostalgic for such things. There is one place in our fair city where these ancient materials of brick and mortar can be found. It is called, simply, Old Tunnel. Here on the edges of what can be considered civilized lurk things older than heart life and more dangerous than free thought. Ladies and gentlemen, the internet has done many things well, and one of them is give creative people a chance to reinvent the audio drama. We at the Sci-Fi Diner podcast are delighted once again to bring your attention to another exciting, fun audio drama. If you like post-apocalyptic stories with a humorous side to them, then you'll want to check out Our Fair City, the winner of the Silvermark Time Award. Tonight we have as our guests uh, the creators, uh, Clayton Fates and Jeff Gardner. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk with us in the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank Thanks you so much. Great. Glad well, to be here. Thank you. Well, we, we do want to talk about our fair city, but we'd like to learn more about you guys, uh, your backgrounds. and um, So what were your sci-fi interests uh, growing up and what um, – what eventually, you know, what are the things that kind of led you to uh, both creating our fair city? Yeah, and uh, Clayton, let's start with you. Terrific. So I'm a, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool space cadet. I grew up on Star Trek The Next Generation, but more than just science fiction, my father is a, uh, a fairly accomplished amateur astronomer who runs a nature conservatory and observatory in, in the darkest part of western Massachusetts. Uh, so from a young age, I was exposed to stargazing, night sky viewing, and the science that goes along with it. I was attending lectures by engineers and astronomers, uh, you know, in the third grade. Uh, I'm not sure how much of it stuck, but the passion for it and the excitement about um, speculative fiction definitely did stick with me. And Our Fair City and, and, and the medium of audio drama grew out of an experience I had in college uh, related to Hurricane Katrina. I was studying mechanical engineering at Tulane University when the storm hit. Uh, and when I returned, my, my program had been cut, basically. 
I changed majors and got involved in the theater department, and the playwrights in the theater department were creating an episodic reflection on the storm. It was a, a, a fantastical story about a deconsecrated church in the Bywater neighborhood of New Orleans that had been rent open by the storm and opened a rift into an alternate New Orleans populated by witches and warlocks and werewolves, and it was, it was fun and dark and edgy and, and really modern, but it was never produced as a full play. It was designed to be a staged reading in a university setting, and I found that really powerful because it put the emphasis on the writer's words and on creating a really rich, dynamic, fascinating story using very little in the way of visual accompaniment. And um, when I moved to Chicago as a young actor, I... I auditioned for some really wonderful productions that had a lot of great things to say, but I found them a little bit boring because they were so grounded in the mundane. And I wanted to do things that were larger than life, that were fantastic, that you couldn't experience in your everyday life. And so the idea for Our Fair City began to germinate, and um, the medium of audio drama seemed, seemed a natural place to take it because we could create fantastical environments, big scenes, big crowds, without having to worry about funding a, a full film set or anything like that, it, it offers a lot of freedom and flexibility uh, for the writer, or the writers in our case. And I think that it's been a, a super fun world for us to create and play in using, using nothing but the words, really. Hmm. So, and so, Jeff, how, how, did, how did you end up coming to this place of Our Fair City? Well, uh, uh, like Clayton, I grew up um, on Star Trek and the X-Files and uh, Nova. Uh, those were kind of my big three growing up, um, and, uh, but also with a lot of kind of the high fantasy literature. I, you know, I uh, read Tolkien for the first time at four, or was read Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings at five. And uh, so I have always been a, a kind of big story addict, um, epics. My, uh, where Clayton studied engineering and theater, I was, uh, classical history and theater. And so, um, I moved from Tolkien into the Iliad and the Greek tragedies. Um, and so I, Clayton talked a lot about how, you know, you can work on a different scale in audio drama at, you know, much more reasonable budget. And, um, you know, until I have the chance to do, you know, ten million dollar movies um, or ten million dollar stage plays, uh, I found audio drama to be a great place to kind of stretch those um, epic world building uh, muscles that uh, that I, you know, the stories I grew up on and love. Uh, I, uh, like Clayton, came to Chicago, I guess, in two thousand seven. Um, I'm still very active in the Chicago theater scene um, as a director and a dramaturg, um, but I found Our Fair City to be a great um, kind of artistic home and a place to uh, play with those kind of, you know, geekier science fiction stories that, yeah, we don't get as many chances to play with in Chicago, although, it's a, you know, it's a wonderfully broad theater city and uh, there are lots of different stories that uh, get to be told. Um, uh, so this has this has kind of become. I, I'm not a a relative to Clayton Latecomer into the Arthur City world. Um, uh, so you know the the chance to build this as an artist's film and as a uh, 
place to play in those big stories has been really fun for me. Hmm. Now, you know, one of the things that, you know, I noticed getting into our first city is there's a lot of the way you structure the episode that not just is you have real good quality, but then you're heartening back to really the, the, the thirties and forties style of doing an audio drama. Would you say, uh, do you want to comment on that a little bit? Sure. Let me, let me jump on that. Uh, one thing that's really important with me. Um, so the, um, the uh, a big thing I'm guessing you're referring to is our use of the narrator, which is, um, not as common in modern audio drama as in the kind of the golden age audio drama. Um, the the narrator is a big thing for our first city. Uh, uh, every episode starts and ends with the narrator. It's the framing device, um, and the it it speaks to kind of the larger world we're building in our first city. Um, it's it's the story of the Heartlife Corporation, but. More specifically, the, the audio drama as such is the historical record of um, whatever the far, far future now of the listening is, um, the historical record of everything that is happening in the time of the radio drama, if that makes sense. We're dealing with several different time periods here. Um, so we, we've chosen narration and this very rigid, controlled framing narrative um, as, as a way of further building uh, this world. It's, it's a very controlled, regimented, ordered world, uh, and whereas we might be able to have a little bit more you know, freeform fun without the, the um, dedication to the narrator, I think the fact that at the beginning and end of every episode, you're reminded that you are being told um, something by the company, and every everything that goes into an episode is a lesson of the company is pretty important to the artist's work. Uh, and, and I guess, therefore, arguably controlled by the company. Hmm. They certainly like us to think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, any other comments on that? I don't think you can get into the world of, of audio drama without uh, at least having a taste for some of the classic Orson Welles stuff. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think that it's still you know, wonderfully clever uh, and has a lot to teach young creative people in the modern world. Um, you know, Orson Welles was able to, as, as, a, as a person, uh, self-start in a lot of ways. He was kind of a, uh, an aggressive youth prodigy. And you know, now today... The internet has allowed a lot more people to style themselves in that way to start their own projects, and um, so yeah, we've, we've looked at him uh, and some of the other classics for a little bit of inspiration. And our narrator character, to Jeffrey's point, is uh, entirely written by Ansel Birch, and he's also the voice of of the narrator. And he is uh, maybe more than the rest of us deeply, deeply steeped in golden age radio drama. Uh, he's a big, big fan and models a lot of what he's doing after the heightened language and the, and the overblown verbosity uh, that they got to <laughs> indulge in. You know, yeah. He really enjoys playing with the words as a writer and, uh, and as a narrator. Yeah, it made me think of it. I, I always smile when I get to the end and said, you know, and they'll be saying, will this person do this? Or will this happen? Tune in next time. You know, it's, it's, it's so much uh, reminds me of, you know, the episodes of 
the shadow, you know, and, you know, yeah. sponsored by Pennsylvania Blue Coat. Yeah, we're, we're really shooting for uh, a sort of a magic blend, not a magic blend, but that just that perfect amount of camp and melodrama um, that I think those, those radio shows captured so well. Yeah. Yeah, and I, would, and I would agree with that. And I think the other thing that has kind of caught me initially, just talking not necessarily about the content, but the episodes themselves, is um, we are, Miles and I are huge fans of the patio dramas that are out there with like Leviathan Chronicles, We're Alive, and uh, oh, there's many others out there that we've also kind of gotten into and really enjoyed. But, but yours is one of the first that has taken the episodes and said, you know what, we don't need to give a 25-minute episode. We don't need to give a half-an-hour episode. We can do this in five to seven minutes, or we can do this in 15 minutes, and we can tell the story, and it's gonna, people are going to come back wanting for more in that short form of it. And, and, I, and I really appreciated that when I got into it. I'm like, oh, it's over already? Okay, next one. You know, <laughs> you know tell us a little bit about your decision. Uh, what played into the length that you guys chose? And I know it's kind of gotten longer as you've gone on, at least in season three, but tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> so uh, it's funny that you should mention uh, this, the, the length and the format that we chose is a little bit reactionary. We produced a draft of season one with the initial uh, writing team that was supposed to be 45 minutes to an hour and actually read at about 80 minutes long. Uh, and it was excruciating. It was excruciating to sit through because it, you know, sort of collapsed under its own weight. It was uh, too self-indulgent. It took too much time to get anywhere. And at that point, you know, I, I, we had we had invested ourselves in this this world, and we knew we really believed that the world was going to be fun and that we wanted to explore it. But it, it turns out the, the work wasn't very good, and we had to do something to fix that. And so the reaction was, all right, we're going to throw the long format out the window, and we're going to try to do this in exciting, punchy, bite-sized chunks. And uh, there's, there's definitely an evolution if you listen to the first season versus the second versus the third. I think from season one to season two, you know, we really learned how to make a short episode uh, which contained everything you need to, had all the moving parts. I listened back to some of the episodes in season one, and we're very proud of the work, but... There are times when I think, oh, there's something, you know, there's, there's, there's an action that is not here that, that should be. And it's maybe just placed into the next episode or it's kind of weirdly split between scenes because we were in a transitional phase. And then from two to three, you, you're, you're right, we do start to see the episodes get longer. The world is more fully developed. We're starting to explore characters on a deeper level. In writing season three, we really we looked at these characters that we had created and we said, you know, they're all deeply flawed, many of them have, have deep, driving, burning desires. They have things that they want very badly in this world where, you know, people don't get a lot of the things that they want. And so we wanted to take them and, and hold them up to the flame and, and see what happens when they're forced to confront the realities of, of the world and the fact that they may not get the happy ending, whatever that is, that, that this particular character is looking for. And so to, to do that, it's taken a little bit more time. But we're, we're really dedicated to creating a work um, for for a modern audience, something that you can punch into your iPod on your commute. We're all Chicagoans, so we're writing the L. We have something that is that is bite-sized and convenient and, and, as you say, leaves you wanting to come back for more. And we have our feedback from other listeners who say, you know, that they'll, they'll deliberately wait until they can eat through five of them at once <laughs> to get a piece of it. And that's, 
you know, that's that's kind of great feedback for us. It means that at least uh, the story sustains itself, and you and you want to be able to delve deeper into the world and the reality of it. Mm, yeah. So, what was the inspiration for our fair city? That's a great question, Clayton. Why don't you take that one? Absolutely. So, I was um, in college with a couple of friends. Um, and we were we were a little drunk, and we were talking about what what would happen eventually when global climate change stops being something that might happen one day and started being something that humanity was dealing with. Um, our fair city comes from uh, a clear acceptance that global climate change is a reality, and that it's quite possibly getting to the point where it's too late to do anything seriously about it. We're going to have to deal with the consequences in whatever form they they come. And the fundamental premise was that the first thing that happens is growing seasons are affected. Staple crops become more expensive. You know, we're, we're actually starting to see some of that this year. We're seeing shortages in pork and a couple of key grains. As food becomes more expensive, the populace becomes harder to maintain. I mean, we saw uh, Jeffrey's a classicist back in the, in the days of Rome when you couldn't feed the people. They, they, had, they had bread and circus day, uh, you know, party for everyone's free bread. But it's, it's only sustainable as long as there are resources. And as they continue to dwindle, it becomes harder in our hypothetical that we're sort of playing out for the government to maintain order. And if the government can't provide what the people need, they look to other sources of authority. Whoever has the most guns gets to make the rules. And in this hypothetical, the people who would have the most guns and therefore a monopoly on violence are going to be large, wealthy, corporate entities with assets to protect. And so we started thinking about... Hartford, Connecticut, which is uh, in the part of New England where I grew up. Uh, my father worked there for many years, uh, and it's a home to many, many uh, insurance and finance corporations. Hartford's a big capital for those industries. And so we started to think, what if, what if it were an insurance company or a finance company that ended up as the dominant monolithic corporate government of a small, isolated city-state in the wake of all of the civil unrest in the wake of uh, a change to the surface of the planet that may cut these cities off, and sort of the end of globalism, even the end of regionalism, down to uh, uh, an isolated city-state. And that's sort of the genesis for, for heart life. And the characters that we've created and, and, and ended up following grew as a way to explore that world. We looked at different perspectives that we could have within the structure of this society, and we thought about how highly striated it would be. Um, and it's, of course, informed by the experience of, of many of us having had jobs in offices or working for large corporations that um, have that degree of hierarchy, that have huge separations, uh, you know, both in terms of an income disparity, but also in terms of the difference in, in clout and accessibility between your average entry-level worker and a vice president or, or an executive. So that's, that's kind of where the idea came from. It was a, it was a what-if things get so bad uh, <laughs> that an insurance company is the only government that people can trust. <laughs> that would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. You know, I you think so. Yeah. So, you know, our first city is so set in this, in this, uh, I guess, you know, is heart life, right? And our fair city is, it. you mentioned kind of the structure in it. And as you were mentioning it, I had these flashbacks and thinking back, back to my experience reading the time machine by, you know, 
uh, you know, H.G. Wells and in, in this in striated society, the, the Morlocks, you know, kind of working everything underneath and the LOE kind of living off the fat of land up, up at the top. And you see throughout the course of the episodes that there's a clash in these societies that are going on from the mole people to the uh, to the uh, I want to say the rat people. And then you have the uh, the scientists or these school of scientists or there's something like I don't forget how, what, you, what you guys call it. And then you have the upper elite. Right, you have this clashing of, especially in season three, you begin to see them kind of mesh. Um, tell us a little bit about life. Uh, what's going on in our fair city in a way that maybe doesn't necessarily spoil the story? So, uh, Jeff, why don't you take this? Sure. Um, so, obviously, you know, as a staple of post-apocalyptic uh, art, it is life is hard. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, again, wanted to keep with that base of what happens if an insurance company runs every piece of your life. And, uh, and what happens if, in general, you trust this company? Because, um, you know, generations ago, they preserved humanity and saved humanity from this awful, awful apocalypse. You know, you, you, they provided the only source of life, and continue to have a monopoly on, um, on caring for, feeding, clothing, providing air for humanity. Um, so we have a, a society where um, every piece of your life is being boiled down uh, by someone you know, several, several tiers above your pay grade into a number. So not just you know, your weight and height and things like that that we, um, you know, would measure more frequently, uh, but your identity variance, how, how likely you are to go along with the company, um, and your, the um, happiness potential for um, marriage or bonding pairing. Um, you know, it, it, so so it, it kind of invades and dominates every piece of one's life um, and, and in a way that um, we maybe find horrific now, but the characters in their situation don't, either because they have grown up in these situations or because it really is a way to preserve life, if you are going to be maximizing um, the uh, the number of people born in a year, um, you know, having a very good scientific way of measuring um, uh, who will be likely to produce twins or more offspring, or um, is there's an argument for that being useful? Uh, it's it's Orders on a horrific argument, but when you're trying to survive, you reach for these things. Um, I'm focusing on this uh, in particular because we've been talking a lot about what does marriage look like in hard life, and that's a really, uh, I think, a neat kind of microcosm to examine the system um, and without spoiling anything about the story at large. So, you know, you have two people who um, uh, who are measured, you know, the, uh, the company has measured everything they can about them, and they say, okay, we think that if we put these two people into a committed 
long-term relationship uh, that will maximize both of their um, happiness and productivity. They will, you know, they will be able to create more for the company. They will create more children for the company. Uh, and as long as our statistical projections are holding up, we will keep them in this marriage. Um, and when that, um, if circumstances change and it becomes clear that these people are not living up to their full potential of happiness, uh, we will divorce them. Um, or, you know, yeah, uh, these things are, are, are things that are decided so far above your pay grade that you go along with them. Um, and so it's not, I think, on the surface, it often looks like an uncaring or um, uh, punitive system. And, you know, any, any massive bureaucracy is going to have a lot of elements of that. But I think it is, you know, current corporate culture has realized that a happy employee uh, will produce more and uh, will, in the long run, be a better investment for the corporation. And uh, we think we like to try to come from the point that the, the Heart Life Corporation is actually really pretty good at what they do. And so this is, this is maybe a totalitarian government, but not one that is interested in uh, beating down its citizens. It is, uh, it is working in a really... Um, Maybe a, a kind of horrifically benevolent way. <laughs> they, um, the, 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 the fright not of the company is going to kill me or damage my life, but the company thinks it knows better than I do um, who I will be happiest with. It's, it's, it's okay, Cupid, if uh, they were actually in charge of who you got to date, not right. just giving you suggestions. Right. Um, so, and I, I think that that is, it's it's equally scary, but it's a very different kind of scary. It's it's not the uh, the the overarching government is forcing you into things, but the overarching government has decided that it knows better than you, and so it's just going to have you go along with these things. And in many cases, people do. I guess the the maybe the some pieces of the series are fair city are looking at what happens when people stop going along and, you know, um, whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. Right. Right. We know you, you, you bring that, you bring that up and, you know, it makes me think of, you know, you, you talk about, you, you mentioned earlier on that science fiction at best is a social commentary of our society. And I would say that one of the commentaries that this brings up as we look at the storyline is, uh, what happens when we give up our rights and allow government to make the decisions for us? And where does that put us? You know, on the food chain of a, in the government being a corporation in and of itself. I'm thinking especially here for our listeners here in North America, but even in other countries where that might happen. But so you're making me think a little bit here. That's a good thing. So, um, <laughs> Um, you know, you, you create within this world such fascinating characters too. Um, I think uh, I think one of my favorite early episodes, and, and maybe I'll spoil this just a little bit, but I, I have to because it's one of my favorite episodes is the is the, the episode in which we meet Neil Henderson. 
Um, and he's he's talking to the corporate boss and, and, and about him, you know, working, you know, in, in a shithole, literally. <laughs> and uh, and he's, you know, in a shitstorm. And the way it's written, Miles, you were... You, you, yeah, I was on the road. I, I, I almost swerved when I was because I was laughing so hard hearing that one. Um, him explaining to his boss what's going on, and the boss says, "Well, we prefer you don't use expletives to you know describe you know your." And he's not. No. He's, he's being serious. That is serious. And it's just it's just some great some great writing guys in that in that piece. And it and it and it's one of the episodes that I, I, I listened to it and it hooked me into it. And he's become one of the characters that he's. He's a bit dense, but but he he's he's good hearted and he's trying to do the right thing, even though he's totally pursuing this, you know, girl that's just totally wrong for him. Yeah, that's wrong for him. Screwed mm-hmm. him over, but he's still a good heart, you know. And you follow this guy and you feel for him. So, um, but I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about well, Neil's definitely a favorite. <laughs> yeah, we we I, I I've been enjoying uh, the favorite, and also um, uh, who who's the girl that they uh, uh, you know when whenever here I think Walking Dead um, the the girl that they bring back they reanimate West is it West Oh Elizabeth Rourke yeah Elizabeth Rourke talk about an interesting character there <laughs> um, you know you created some. F- Fantastic characters. Can you tell us just a little bit about some of the characters? We mentioned Elizabeth Rourke, uh, but tell us some of the other characters that are kind of playing in this field. And why don't we, uh, since we started with, um, since we started with you, Jeff, let's go ahead and start with Clayton here. Well, one of my favorite characters that's really grown over time that started as kind of a background character, a secondary character, and has, has developed into her own her own mole lady is uh, the character of Lonely. And in, in the world, oh, I like her. Uh, we do have genetically engineered mole people who are responsible for the tunneling and the maintenance of this largely underground society for, for thermal purposes. And Lonely it, it started out as a, a kind of, a, kind of a, a joke. She was a catch-all handy mole who would turn up doing odd jobs in, in every place we possibly could. And the more that we've explored this mole, we, you know, we started to ask, well, what's, what's behind that? You know, she's doing all of these jobs all the time. And, and usually while she's shoveling dirt in one tunnel, she's, she's piping away about how she's also the editor of the one and only mole newspaper. Oh, she's also the printer uh, and the, the only reporter. I mean, she does the whole thing herself. And why, why would a mole uh, take on all of these jobs and, and, and work so hard? And it came from this this one sort of sad little line that hinted at some tragedy in her past and at the idea that working is the only thing that keeps her mind off of that darkness, off of the things that she's sort of not able to deal with or refusing to deal with. And so she has to work. It's almost compulsive to keep her hands busy, to keep her mind occupied so that she doesn't dwell. And suddenly this quirky, perky, you know, sort of fun, cockney character had a lot of depth, and, and it, it's it's one of those little revealing moments that are so exciting to me as, as a writer. When I when I can see someone pull that off, there's a moment in in Toy Story three. This is a little bit off topic, but there's a moment in Toy Story three where they start up the computer to get to the map program, and an IM pops up on the screen, and the Triceratops, the female Triceratops toy, 
has this line where she starts typing frantically and says, oh, it's just, it's just a dinosaur toy down the street. It's just a dinosaur toy. It's not a big deal. And just from that one line, we learn so much about this character and her relationships. And it's, it's a really, it's a lot of a character packed into one small punch. And I feel like uh, completely ratchet. One of our one of our writers stumbled onto this moment of lonely and and made this character infinitely uh, uh, deeper. And so she's been a character that I've I've become very interested in. Mm. And and how about how about for you, Jeff? How about a character that maybe resonates with you? Oh man, um, you know Elizabeth Rourke. Uh, we talked about her briefly, and I uh, I. Um, I don't want to, again, spoil anything about her larger arc, but she is a, uh, a character who has um, grown a lot, in, uh, a lot of kind of metaphorical and uh, different ways through the series, and it's been a lot of fun to play with. But started off um, in, you know, one episode of um, season one as uh, someone kind of in relation, the, she's the mother of Nathan Rourke, uh, who we spent a lot of time with, uh, along with Neil Henderson in the first season. Um, but in the second, third, and, you know, uh, hopefully continuing on after that uh, season, um, she's been, for me, an interesting character to view heart life through. We get hints to her past that, you know, maybe she was a little bit more of a revolutionary in her younger days, stood up to the company, had a bit of a higher identity variance, as we like to call it. Um, and then when we meet her, she is a street-safe monitor. She, so she is someone who watches the innumerable cameras that are throughout all of the tunnels and makes sure no one's doing anything wrong. And thinking about what... Um, you know, not only what makes you go through that kind of change, but uh, w- what turned her into a uh, um, some kind of believer in heart life, um, in, in enough that she, she really did uh, believe in doing this job of, of watching for dissidents and um, things like that. Um, what, you know... Uh, thinking about what, what, you know, how, what kind of growing or learning did she do to, um, to go from someone who wanted to tear down the company to someone who was working to keep it propped up. Hmm. Um, I think that's, it, 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 that maybe resonates with me because that's been my arc. I started this project thinking, ah, oh man, Heart Life is the bad guy. We are going to stick it to this company, and as I've, uh, as the seasons have gone on, um, you know, as, as the director and as one of the co-creators, I am um, find myself more and more on Heartlife's side every day, which terrifies me in ways I'm not even ready to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 the, I guess the longer I spend with Heartlife, the more I buy into some of the rhetoric, and I, I'm wondering if that's just Kind of uh, slow acclimation, or if um, you know, as as the years go on, and as I get older and have responsibilities and things like that, I I start seeing the point of this kind of control and such. Hmm. Um, we know she also. Yeah, we, uh, 
I was going to say that she also represents something. At the initially, she represents something that, that's someone that supports a company, but in her in her current form in season three, she represents something that's almost a bastardization of what the company really wants for its citizens. And so you you see that kind of shift a little bit. Yeah, so that's all I'm going to say about it. We'll spoil too much if we give too much away. <laughs> give too much away about it. But she does seem to switch on it, and uh, and and for that matter, you bring in. Uh, I, I guess is it in season three where you bring in? Um, is it is it Mr. Weston or Doctor Weston? Uh, Doctor West. Uh, Doctor West he shows up in uh, season two. Oh, he shows up in season and, two. And uh, is yeah, well, is and, and, and yeah, similarly started as a. Um, an H.P. Lovecraft joke uh-huh. um, has grown into um, something else entirely. Uh, the the actor who played Dr. West is uh, Ryan Shuey, who's also our um, our sound designer. Um, but he uh, he actually showed up and gave uh, one of the um, kind of introductory addresses at our last uh, season lunch party as Dr. West, which was um, all kinds of fun. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's it, 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 he, he kind of takes on this whole almost uh, Dr. Frankenstein effect in the middle of, you know, our fair city. And, uh, and uh, you know, we don't need to go too much into that, but he is he's very much of a anomaly and he's something that the, insu- the insurance companies, as we're calling them, can't really or have no control over. And that that scares him. Sure. Well, he's, 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 only, he's the first outsider in in the the memory of the company to uh, to make it to Hartford. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 kind of an interesting. It's just an interesting play, and I found him an interesting anomaly in the middle of that story. So, but Miles, did you want to? Sure. Ahead? The more I guess the more technical production end. Um, I looked at your website. You've got a a huge team um, working with you, helping you out. What does it take to make an episode of Our Fair City? That's a great question. So uh, uh, who wants to answer this one? It doesn't matter to me. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll take it. This is Clayton here. I'll take, it, I'll take it the first half of the way, and then I'll turn it over to Jeffrey, which is more, more or less how the process goes. Um, we, we're on a cycle where we are uh, generally always busy. So the writers and I are currently working on the fourth season as we're releasing the third. And that's, that's pretty typical. So we're creating a season arc, we're breaking out specific episodes, we're looking really intensely at characters and how they're going to grow and change. Uh, and this process will take us uh, into, uh, well, we're, we're taking a little break for the holidays because you can't schedule anyone between Thanksgiving and New Year's. But um, we'll, be, we'll be recording the next season in early spring. So the writing process is basically covered by the previous season's release at that point. And that gives us a lot of luxury to be really intensive with it, to do read-throughs of the, the entire season all together so that we can see long arcs and things that are sort of happening on that level between, between the episodes and, and how our characters evolve. Once we do that, we record. And that's, that's a fairly labor-intensive process, and we tend to do it all within... Uh, one one month or so, we record an entire season. We bring actors over. I've got in my apartment uh, a, a makeshift recording studio that's that's gotten better and better every season. We've invested a little bit more 
more money and more time into making it a, a viable recording space. Uh, and we've been really lucky because we've been, in the last couple of seasons, for the first time, been able to put actors face-to-face recording at the same time. Oh, that's uh, and that's awesome. more or less when, when the scripts, which are under my purview, uh, uh, I, I, I just kind of turn over entirely to Jeffrey, who will be directing the episodes while I, I tend to do the on-site audio engineering, and that's when, that's when Jeffrey takes it. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, like you're saying, we're really lucky to um, work with a huge number of people. I think the count is somewhere, somewhere around 70 people have worked on RFRCity uh, from inception to where it is now. Um, we have um, a huge resource in Chicago, which is that we have some of the world's best actors and improvisers and comedians. Um, so we, like Claire was saying, we bring uh, a fairly large cast in chunks into um, uh, our studio over a month or two months, usually, to record a season. Uh, our production manager um, swears that one of these uh, years it's going to be easy to schedule, but we haven't found it yet. Um, so we, uh, yeah, we take about a month or two months to record. Um, we generally record each episode separately, um, and uh, then over um, the the next months and generally during the release time, we work with um, our chief sound designer Ryan Sheely and. Um, one of our uh, assistant audio engineers, David Reinstrom, who's also a writer and helps uh, us produce things, etc. A really great uh, kind of utility player. Um, we chop up and line up all of the uh, raw audio, which is a very labor-intensive and kind of exhausting process. Um, and that goes through multiple revisions with notes from myself, from Clayton, um, and then that raw audio that's been arranged by David gets sent over to Ryan, who layers on sound effects and the the backgrounds and the world and um, creates the you know the texture, the really rich texture that he's able to create. Um, the the I think one thing that I have been so happy with our process with is how many people have their fingers in the pot. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a writing team, what, Clayton now is six, five, six active writers, um, multiple engineers, uh, Clayton and I always kind of picking at things, and because we have so many different people giving notes and pulling it, I think we, um, no, no good idea goes unchallenged, um, and everything is improved on. Uh, we're really able to, um, I think, work up a product that um, is uh, uh, so much more than I know that I could do if it were just me or just myself and Clayton, um, because we have uh, so many really amazing artists giving input and improving. Uh, along with that, we um, during this whole process, we also have the visual art side, uh, because we're uh, primarily an audio medium, we decided early on to pair each episode with um, one piece of visual art that in some way encapsulated the episode, either a scene from the episode or something textural that evoked the episode. Um, and 
we have um, really a, a really cool group of artists who have been working with us on that. Um, Dan Tincher is our visual art director. Um, he's also, at this point, actually pr- produced a um, uh, graphic novel anthology based in the world of farm life, which has been um, one of the coolest things I think of seen coming out of this. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's been the really important process, the part of the technical process, really, just the, the number of eyes that go on each piece of art that comes out. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's in, in, I think out of that, you of course have your have a uh, a, um, a graphic novel that has kind of come out of this. Uh, the idea of blending the art and the and the drama and the story of Heart Life that you kind of have as a, a way that people could uh, buy and support you a little bit. I'm sorry, I missed the end of that question. No, I just that that you have this. Um, people can buy this sort of. Um, tabletop uh, graphic novel that I guess uh, people could uh, support you guys a little bit by, uh, you know, blending the artwork and the, uh, and the written word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and having it come um, in uh, through, through different mediums, um, which I think just broadens the world. Right. It's been really cool for us. Right. Right. Very good. Uh, you know, we you set the story. What's interesting is that you set the story uh, in the far future, focused on a past time that is kind of a apocalyptic future for us, or a post apocalyptic future for us, um, and and that's kind of an interesting setting. Is there something about this setting a story in a in a post apocalyptic setting that kind of appealed to you? Uh, maybe that's one question. And the other part of that question is, you know, we have a lot of, you know, post-apocalyptic dramas that are out there that we love. Uh, Miles and I both are fans of Walking Dead, obviously. Are, uh, we, we, we Currently, it's early on, but we're currently fans of Revolution, the new series that came out. Um, is there something that's kind of drawn, that drawn that drew you to that? Is there something that maybe you think draws us as human beings to that sort of setting? So two questions there. Um, and why don't we start with Clayton? Why don't you start us off? Oh sure. Well, I I think when when it, when, it, when a typical audience looks at an apocalyptic movie, whether it's you know Mad Max or a modern zombie flick, whatever it is, you know, there's there's a part of us, of course, that's rooting for the humans to or whoever the protagonist is to come to. But there's there's another part of it that just wants to wants to see that come to pass. You're, you're almost rooting for the zombie apocalypse to happen. And I know, I know there are people who are going to hear this who, who are going to be thinking to themselves like, yeah, you know, you, you come up with your, with your plan for what you're going to do about it. I mean, most of my friends have a zombie apocalypse plan, and they, they say it, you know, with that kind of like sheepish irony, like, well, of course I do. But, you know, <laughs> I, I wonder how much serious thought they've actually put into it. Um, and it's, it's because... I think it's for a number of reasons. I think, I think first of all, it's a safe environment in which to express your inner id, whatever that is. In a post-apocalyptic world, it's perfectly understandable, even acceptable for you to do acts of violence, uh, theft, because the, the desperation gives you license to do it. But processing that desperation through fiction gives you the safety and comfort of enjoying it vicariously. You know, I think... I think real hunger and real desperation is a terrible thing that no one wants to experience. But to look at it from the standpoint of, of fiction, it lets you 
I bet you indulge a part of your of yourself. And and when you look at, at desperate scenarios uh, in in post apocalyptic fiction, there's always a part of your brain going, "Oh, I, I could do that. I would make I would make the smart choices. I would be the one who lives at the end." <laughs> of course. You know? So there's there's a lot of like fun juice for an audience member to to to, to delve into to think about. You know, when you when you start exploring how bad things could go and. You know, we get to envision what we would be capable of under those desperate situations. I think the average the average American information worker who, you know, goes to a job where they are on their feet or sitting down, you know, dealing with dealing with information bits, right? Most most Americans, many Americans are, are information workers. And I, I think that there's not there's not a lot of opportunity to be outwardly or overtly heroic in that role. But in the post apocalyptic environment there there's certainly there are those opportunities. And yeah, in, in, in our city, chance. we often try to explore them from a little bit more uh, of a jaded perspective. You know, it's, it's easy to get swept up in that, but a lot of our characters who who think that they're going to have the opportunity to act heroic or, or, or think that they, they have acted heroically, you know, that's, that's undercut in some way. It's, it's either revealed to be out of selfish motives or it's revealed to be... Uh, in, in, in any number of ways, less less heroic or, or less interesting than they thought it was, because um, you know those those are sort of indulgent fantasies that we like to enjoy in in a post apocalyptic world, um, and not necessarily the reality of, of living that out. Yeah, and that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. I once heard someone say um, that. We enjoy we enjoy the zombie apocalypse and the idea of it because it gives the idea that all we need to do is point, shoot, and kill, <laughs> you know. And the idea that this is very much similar to us attacking one email at a time and killing it, and you know, getting to inbox zero or whatever else we're trying to do. That this is kind of a metaphor for a larger society, but that's probably a discussion for another time. <laughs> but the uh, yeah. the the idea that this is a, just a, I think I think you're right that there's something in the apocalypse that says. Number one, that we can survive, and number two, that oh yeah, I could do that. So I kind of agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, and and to build on something you're saying there, um, it's it's so much easier than the problems we have today. And that sounds <laughs> weird because you know obviously you're fighting for your life, but you know the I don't know. Yes, uh, we we both um, both Clayton and I come from a sense where you know we deeply believe that global climate change is a thing that's happening and is going to be a problem not for our children, but for us. You know, we are, we are going to be alive for many of these, um, you know, dramatic and possibly cataclysmic events. And, um, uh, but, you know, for a zombie apocalypse, it, you, you're right. It's, it's so much easier to, um, to think of, oh, how would I survive when everything has gone wrong, rather than how can I prevent this from happening? You know, global climate change is an enormous, enormous problem that is incredibly complicated. Um, and and we, we don't know exactly how to prevent it. And it's a, it's a really, it's a huge and a really scary question. Right. And it's so much, it's so much easier and more fun to think, how would I how would I survive in a world where there is no electricity or where there is no where we don't have access to these things and you know my problems are how do I you know fend off the ban of walkers or how do I 
um, protect my little, uh, you know, caravan supply of arrows, then how do we, you know, negotiate with other countries and um, to, to, you know, bring energy consumption under control when we can't even bring it under control for ourselves? Right. You know, how... Um, yeah. It's uh yeah, it's easier to to point shoot and kill. Well yeah, what it is it becomes you become back to the the basics. It strips you everything but you know what do you need to live basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, hey, I we have got to wrap up this interview. We're you're encroaching in 40 minutes here, which is absolutely phenomenal. I had a great time chatting with you guys. We want to give our listeners a way to access our fair city. Where can they find you? Let's start with that, and then also, how can they support you? And uh, Jeff, why don't you take? Why don't you take? Why don't you take how they can find you, Jeff? And then Clayton, if you can tell us how we can support you, that'd be great. Sure, uh, our fair city. Um, all three seasons that are currently online are and will always be free. Uh, you can find them on our website for streaming or download at ourfaircity.com. We also have an iTunes podcast that you can find uh, searching um, Our Fair City on iTunes. Uh, that would be an easier way to download. Uh, we're also on Facebook, OSC Radio. Um, there, you'll find us and you'll find a band. And you know, also like the band, but definitely like us. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Very good. And, uh, and uh, Clayton, how can people support the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'd love to see you. We'd love to see you liking the Facebook page. We'd love to see you joining us and following us on Twitter. Of course, listening is the most important thing to us as artists. We we decided at the outset of this that we wanted to make it and distribute it at no charge to the listener so that we could reach as wide an audience as possible. But if you would like to help us out monetarily, that's also much appreciated. On our website, there's a link where you can buy the graphic anthology that was mentioned by Jeffrey earlier. It's the first that will be uh, a series. We're actually working on the next one now, and it's got some really terrific art by some really wonderful uh, and talented artists telling uh, stories from the world of our fair city and featuring some of our uh, our favorite characters. So check that out. It's on the website again, ourfaircity.com. Awesome. Well, thanks, Clayton and Jeff, for taking time just to sit with us. Miles, we had a good time, right? Yeah, and I, I've... I've enjoyed what I've heard so far. Look forward to uh, you know working my way through our fair city. But please keep your eyes on the road, Miles. We'd rather you not get in an accident <laughs> listening to them. Well, <laughs> it's their fault. They made me laugh so hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks, guys, again for joining us tonight. <laughs>